Welcome to Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each episode of this podcast will explore the life of a particular saint in the novel Black Bottom Saints, the rich history of Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, what the Detroit past has to tell us about the global future, and in with a cocktail recipe. This podcast is for people who have and have not read Black Bottom Saints. We'll be talking about the play between history and fiction and how one informs the other. I hope a stop here is a little like meeting up with a talkative stranger in the lobby of Detroit's fabled Gotham Hotel, or this episode, Two Talkative Strangers. This week, I will introduce you to Nat King Cole to lay down the velvet carpet for that pearl. I can think of no better person to welcome to the podcast than Dr. Stephen Lewis of the Smithsonian Institution. Stephen Lewis. Some people describe Black Bottom Saints as a novel that functions as a museum. You are an actual curator. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to museum work? Sure. So I have um, been interested in working in museums at least since I started graduate school, you know, fairly early on in my music studies, I became really interested in music history, um, you know, music as part of, of culture. And, and so I went from, you know, studying jazz saxophone performance at the undergraduate level to going on to work on a master's degree and a doctorate in critical and comparative studies in music, which is sort of musicology and ethnomusicology at the University of Virginia. But something that was a preoccupation of mine as I got more involved in the academy was finding some way for my research and my studies uh, to remain relevant and, and hopefully remain a positive contribution to, to the community in a sense that went beyond the academy, uh, in particular the Black community. You know, I, I sort of, everything that I've done professionally in the back of my mind, I've thought, you know, is this something that, you know, people who I knew growing up, growing up or, or my relatives would be able to engage with? And that's been really important to me. It's been really important to be doing the work I love in a way that's accessible and relevant and feels like it is a positive contribution to uh, kind of, uh, you know, people's lives. And the thing I like about museums is that they kind of have that combination of research uh, and, and scholarship with public engagement and community life, you know, because really you, you build these spaces on this foundation of research and then you invite the community in and, and you really are kind of creating community centers where people can come and reflect on themselves and, and their own place in history and culture. I love that idea of a museum as a community center. But before we get onto a little bit more about that, where were you having this childhood? So I, I grew up, uh, my, I really grew up in the metro Atlanta area. But before I, I landed there with my family, when I was going into first grade, uh, I was actually a military kid. And my dad uh, was stationed in Germany when I was in kind of preschool, kindergarten. And actually my earliest experiences of museums were 
actually in Europe, because of where we were living at the time, we were living in Heidelberg and Kitzingen, Germany. And I was really lucky to have parents who were big believers in exposing my sister and I uh, to all kinds of, of new and unfamiliar experiences. And because we were in Europe, we went all over the place. And, and so, you know, my childhood, even though a lot of it was before I can remember, uh, in Europe, I think had an impact on the kind of work I'd want to do later on, because literally from earlier than I can remember, I was in museums. My parents talk about taking me to the Louvre uh, when I was in a stroller when they went to Paris from Germany. And, um, and, you know, so that was, that was a good, I'd say a formative experience, but then like the bulk of my growing up was, was in Atlanta kind of from midway partway through elementary school through when I left for college. Um, and that was important as well. I mean, I think Atlanta is a really special place uh, because of the way that city has kind of embraced and, and made its black history part of its identity, you know, in a way that, that um, uh, you know, other cities have done increasingly since then, but I think Atlanta really, you know, the, from the street names after civil rights heroes uh, to the, you know, the African art collections at the High Museum uh, and all those things are really important things that I was able, again, to, to go experience growing up, you know, there always were kind of like rituals we do every year, you know, every year, the Alvin Ailey dance company would come to Atlanta in February, and we'd always go, you know, um, every year, maybe not in February, but definitely kind of in early in the year, the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra would come to Atlanta. And so my dad would always take me to see uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center, you know, when they'd come through the symphony hall. And, and so it was, you know, that, that kind of, uh, those, those early African-American cultural experiences, specifically experiences kind of in places like the, the ballet and the symphony hall and everything, uh, that was really important. And I think that was the kind of thing that, uh, I wouldn't say it could only have happened in Atlanta, but definitely the fact that we were in Atlanta surrounded by so much black leadership uh, was important. Well, your focus is music and the performing arts. And I guess we can see right there, it got started with your daddy taking you to both music <laughs> and the performing arts in Atlanta. That's right. Uh, and, we, and you're today with the National Museum of African-American History and Culture of the Smithsonian. Right. One of the ways I think about the Smithsonian, and I grew up in Washington, D.C., running off to it every chance I could get, is that it is the nation's museum and the museum, it's the museum that reminds us collectively of who we are. Name one of the objects that was immediately important to you when you arrived to be curator of music and performing arts. Yeah. Perhaps it was an object that made you think differently about what it was to be an American or captured the exits of your understanding, but any object that mattered deeply to you. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, the, the object that you know, one that I find really fascinating because I think it encapsulates uh, a lot of the distinctiveness of Black American culture, uh, also because it's somewhat sort of mysterious, you know, it's hard to trace uh, a lot of the details of its provenance, is a, um, a gourd banjo that we have from around the 1850s. Uh, it's, it's hard to trace exactly uh, what year it would have been built. The reason why it's so interesting to me uh, is the banjo in particular, and especially gourd instruments that, that, that Black Americans were building in the 18th and 19th century, 
uh, kind of embody that combination of African and kind of European and, and Native American influences that combines to give you a distinctive African-American culture. You know, the, the, the materials, so for example, the gourd, that is a, a Native American, Indigenous American kind of agricultural product, right, that, that, is, that is cultivated by the Indigenous people here. The, the concept of a stringed instrument with a drum's head on it uh, comes from North and West Africa. And that's something that, that Black people bring with them uh, via the transatlantic slave trade to the Caribbean and to North America. Uh, and then other elements of the instrument, like for example, the neck of this banjo has frets on it, the way that a European guitar would have or other European string instruments have. And so kind of in, in this one object, you have that, that uh, it kind of encapsulates that early history of cultural mixture, you know, that gives you, uh, that gives you black American music uh, in, in a way, it gives you all of Black American culture, you know. And so, you know, I've always been fascinated by that instrument in particular because of uh, its ability to very, I think, beautifully express aspects of the Black experience. And, and, and particularly aspects of the Black experience that we can't really, it's hard to access those things in any other way than by looking at things like material culture, uh, embodied traditions, the way people cook, the way people speak. Those are things that give us a window into kind of the, the early history of Black America, especially because we have so few other uh, traditional documents, you know, that, that we'd consult as historians. So I really love that object. Um, I'll add one more as a saxophonist. Well, first uh, of all, wait, wait, I have to stop yeah. you one second and say your description of that object actually brought tears to my eyes. Oh, my goodness. Because it literally captured all the things that come into making black culture and how African all Americans are who listen mm -hmm. to the banjo or anything that your description of the pieces. And just, I have to say so beautiful. I am thrilled that you are in Washington oh. in this position, helping us engage our narrative. But what is that other wonderful oh, object? Yes. I want to hear another one. <laughs> this, this other one is, is really, uh, for me, because of, you know, because of my own background playing the saxophone and because of the music that I really fell in love with when I was a teenager, uh, it's just one of those things. There are some things about the job at the Smithsonian that uh, you, you, you get to engage with and handle these things and it sort of is almost like a, a, a dream and you say, is this really happening? And so we have uh, one of Charlie Parker's saxophones, uh, actually one of only a couple of his horns that that exist you know that are in museum collections um and it's it's a saxophone he played kind of from the late 1940s uh through the 1950s you know before his death in 1955 and um it's really an incredible instrument because uh not only is it the horn he played on a lot of his great recordings from that that span of time uh but it's also one that he had kind of custom uh custom designed by the the manufacturer to reflect uh, what he was going for in his music. And so again, you know, you can kind of, uh, uh, through that material culture of black music, you know, you get some insight into the way a genius musician like a Charlie Parker uh, was thinking about his craft, you know. Uh, and then at the same time, 
you know, you, you've got this long history of, of, of black musicians modifying or otherwise altering their instruments uh, to meet their, uh, their aesthetics, you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. And then just on, on kind of the, the kind of kid in a candy store level, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, this is Charlie Parker's saxophone. <laughs> and, I love that. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. You know, I'm very, very fortunate to get to do this work. Well, one of the reasons we wanted you on the podcast this episode is that we are celebrating Nat King Cole and that you have an experience and a tradition in your own embodied life of playing jazz, as well as being a scholar and curator. So we're here to celebrate Nat King Cole. Within the context of Black Bottom Saints, Nat King Cole is an artist, but he's also a political person. And he is an artist who is challenged by the politics of his time. Where are some of the places we see art intersecting with politics in the Smithsonian collection that you curate? So, you know, I really think that the intersections between Black music and politics are, are really all over the history. You know, I'm thinking, you know, we have things like, you know, materials. We have like a copy of, of Nina Simone's recording of Mississippi Goddamn, for example, a very well-known uh, instance. Um, we have... Also, and this is kind of something that's really interesting, I think, on the community level, we have a hymnal insert from the 1930s of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is, you know, which is labeled the Negro National Anthem on the insert. And, and it really, that, that example kind of encapsulates that kind of uh, uh, spirit of civic engagement and activism you've had in Black churches, uh, going all the way back to the very beginnings of the, the independent Black church, kind of in the early 19th century. Um, you know, there were, this is only a couple of, uh, you know, only a couple of decades after Lift Every Voice and Sing is, um, is written by the uh, Johnson brothers. And you already have black churches around the country who are adding it to their services. Um, you know, and then of course you have, you know, there's a dress that Marian Anderson wore when she sang at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, so there's, there's, there's objects like that that kind of capture these, these really, well-known and, and central moments of, of activism through music. You know, one of my favorites is, is the Marian Anderson dress um, for and that reason. Please tell our listeners who don't know why it was so significant that Marian Anderson was singing at the Lincoln. Sure, so Marian Anderson was going to give a recital at Constitution Hall, which is uh, owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, and the Daughters of the American Revolution had a very strict segregation policy. This was in the 1930s. And so she was barred from performing there. And so instead of performing at Constitution Hall, she performed on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in what became a very iconic and significant uh, moment in not only in Black music, not only in the career of Marian Anderson, who was herself uh, one of the greatest vocalists uh, uh, in American history, but also in, in the history of the civil rights movement. You know, a lot of people said, um, you know, years later when you have the uh, March on Washington culminating at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, people said that Marian Anderson really had kind of um, opened that door for the Lincoln Memorial as a site of Black activism, you know, uh, which, which in turn goes back to the, the kind of you know, the significance of Abraham Lincoln kind of in, in Black history, you know, kind of reclaiming a historical figure who is very complicated and not, uh, you know, was himself pretty racist, you know, kind of reclaiming that emancipation spirit 
into the larger black civil rights struggle, you know, of the 20th century is a really interesting narrative as well. I appreciate you bringing Marian Anderson up because I think her embodied performance, mm -hmm. not being able to have embodied performance at Constitution All became an, an interrogation of our Constitution and her performance <laughs> that exists at the Lincoln Memorial doubled mm -hmm. down on that. It's, so you, it's, oh, sorry. You wrote your dissertation on jazz neoclassicism and African-American political ideologies when you were earning your PhD at the right. University of Virginia. Can you share with us a short version of what that amazing nuanced and long work, which I have had the privilege of peeking into with a little bit of help, uh, was about and how it is useful to framing our understanding of Nat King Cole? Sure, sure. So, so my dissertation was about looking at the music and the cultural commentary of Wynton Marsalis, Stanley Crouch, and Albert Murray in the context of Black intellectual history. So I, I should say first, you know, kind of the, the moment in jazz history I was interested in in that dissertation uh, was what ended up being called jazz neoclassicism. So it's this period kind of in the 1980s and 1990s in particular, uh, where you have uh, a number of very, very highly accomplished young black jazz musicians uh, who are becoming very prominent, um, playing a, you know, a very kind of traditional style of, um, of straight ahead jazz, you know, so kind of like the music they're playing is coming out of the tradition of people like Art Blakey, and, um, you know, Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, kind of, kind of those iconic figures of the mid 20th century. So they're kind of reviving that style and then kind of updating it uh, in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and in the process of that, you have uh, Wynton Marsalis, who at that time is kind of this young uh, celebrated prodigy who's in his 20s, uh, along with Stanley Crouch and Albert Murray, who's an older figure who was very close with Ralph Ellison and is a very important cultural commentator in his own right, becoming these spokespeople for jazz in kind of the media. And so, the thing that's interesting to me is that the 1980s and 90s are this point where jazz is almost in a paradoxical position because its institutional standing has advanced to an unprecedented point. You know, you have jazz studies programs and universities all over the countries. You have the establishment of jazz at Lincoln Center, uh, which is this, uh, you know, basically kind of a jazz equivalent of the New York Philharmonic that's established at Lincoln Center in New York City. Um, but then at the same time, its place in popular culture has, has declined significantly and, and within African-American life, it's much less uh, prominent than it had been you know, a few decades prior. And so in this context, you have Wynton Marsalis and Crouch and Murray and others arguing for jazz's significance as black culture. And they're drawing on ideas about culture and class that go back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries, kind of the ideology of racial uplift. So there's these ideas about music's power to uplift Black people, uh, ideas about the role of, of the Black middle class as cultural leaders, and all these things are kind of filtered through uh, the history of jazz. So in other words, what I wanted to do is place that moment in jazz history into the broader context of Black intellectual history in the kind of late 19th through the 20th centuries. Um, and so, so that's like, that's the elevator pitch version of my dissertation, which itself was pretty, <laughs> was pretty long-winded. But, um, you know, as far as relating to Nat King Cole, Nat's music really 
is so important in the uh, kind of development of that kind of classic period of jazz that musicians in the late 20th century were celebrating. You know, I'd, I'd actually say Nat is probably an underappreciated figure as far as his impact. He's, he's definitely, you know, he's, he's certainly an icon of American popular culture, but also he's really a foundational figure for especially jazz piano playing after the 1940s in a way that does not get talked about as much, you know. And, and so I think, you know, there's kind of a rediscovery of, uh, you know, his way of playing along with the ways, uh, the styles of some of his acolytes uh, at that point in the 80s and 90s, you know. So there's definitely, the, the music continues to resonate during that period. Well, I love this connection that in Black Bottom Saints, we have this narrator, Ziggy Johnson, and Ziggy Johnson believed that Nat King Cole was underrated and very influential, and he's talking in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. And you in 2022 are saying, what is the Black Bottom past? Tell us about the future. The future is there's room for more Nat King Cole studies. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any artifacts at the museum specifically related to Nat King Cole, that instrument you were talking about is your second favorite instrument. Do you think it was ever in the room with Nat King Cole? What do you have in the museum? Yeah, so so we have the, there is a, a beautiful blue suit that Nat wore when he was uh, portraying W.C. Handy in the 1958 film, uh, St. Louis Blues. Mm. Which, yeah, oh. and so it's, we have, we have that. We also have some great photographs of him at the piano. Uh, and kind of, kind of, you know, sort of publicity photographs. But, but one of the really spectacular pieces is that blue suit. That's the um, blue black museum truth. You have that suit. I am so thrilled of him <laughs> portraying W.C. Handy. <laughs> I love that. Oh yeah. I loved it when that is. And is it on display right now? It's it's not currently on display, but it is. You can see it on the museum's website. If you go and go to the digital collection search, you can see the suit there actually photographed from a couple of different angles, along with kind of more information about the provenance and, and uh, information about Nat's role in that film. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really, you know, the St. Louis Blues is also a really interesting film because, you know, it's, it's kind of an early film that is celebrating the life of a black figure uh, and, uh, and is very, you know, very careful to to not kind of lean on kind of the the old kind of uh stereotypes that black people were kind of forced into in films in particular so it's like a, a very kind of dignified um portrayal of the life of wc handy who himself is like at the foundation of american music in the 20th century so it's a really interesting movie and and of course nat plays wc handy and uh, and brings all of his charisma to that role you know and uh, and also, you know, looks very glamorous in the in the costumes they made for the film, which are great. So that's that's the really big piece uh, related to Nat's career that we have. And I think it's you know, it, it reflects that really iconic period of his in the late 50s. And that gets us directly into what is going to be my next question. Many people remember Nat King Cole as a singer. But as you've just mentioned, he was also an actor. He mm -hmm. was a songwriter, which is very important to me because I am a songwriter. He wrote Straighten Up and Fly Ride and other things. He was a star of a television show. And as I said, he appeared on stages, both live stages, uh, music performance stages, theatrical stages, and cinematic stages. He didn't just create music, he embodied music. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more? You started to indicate, but do you think there's a sense that he became a visual sign of music and politics, a visual sign of the times? And what did his embodied performance sign? Yeah, and this is something, and, and I really love the way that, um, you know, that Ziggy talks about that in Black Bottom Saints for this reason. You know, he, so Nat is is sort of, a, I mean, in addition to being a wonderful musician, wonderful pianist and vocalist, um, he's also kind of a, a Black heartthrob uh, at a time when that was a very, uh, that, that being that was, that was a challenge to, to mainstream society you know, to, to kind of, uh, have, be a black man in Hollywood with that type of charisma and, uh, and, and magnetism, you know, and, and to understand that if you just look a few years earlier at the career of Billy Eckstein, uh, you can see how, um, you know, what Nat was doing by appealing to, you know, this, this, uh, interracial audience by being, uh, attractive, uh, you know, by also, you know, performing in such a sophisticated way at such a high level. Um, look at Billy Eckstein, who, who uh, was known as the Sapia Sinatra, I think in the 1940s. And um, is another Black Bottom Saint for those yep, who yep. that episode. And, um, and so Billy Eckstein appeared in a photo spread in 1950 in Life magazine, uh, you know, in a, and one of the photographs is him kind of surrounded by adoring fans. Um, and because... He was photographed with these fans of his who happened to be white women. Uh, there was such an outcry from white readers in particular that uh, that it actually had a kind of it, it slowed his career down considerably, you know, unfortunately, because he was really becoming a crossover star a few years before Nat became a crossover star in the 1950s. And, and that's the kind of, I guess, resistance to that type of of, again, charismatic a sophisticated black male figure in the media that there was at that time, you know, and that also that kind of resistance is kind of at the root of the, the violence that, that Nat had to deal with in his own career, you know. And he resisted that cultural redlining, though he knew what happened had happened to Billy Eckstein, but he right. dared be, as you call him, a heartthrob for all America. Right, right. And, and again, and this is something I, I kind of mentioned earlier, um, he, he also kind of shapes the, the trajectory of jazz piano after the 1940s because of, again, not only because of his playing, but because of uh, kind of innovations in the instrumentation of the jazz piano trio that he brings in in the 1930s. And so what I'm talking about in, in particular is um, Nat forms, I think in 1937, uh, a trio with himself on piano and then with a guitarist and a bassist. Uh, which is unusual because, you know, generally with piano trios, you'd have piano, drums, and bass, you know, so rather than a drummer, he has a guitarist. Um, And that format of piano, guitar, bass ends up being a very important and influential kind of uh, uh, new model of the jazz piano trio going into the 1950s and even into the 60s. So if you look at the work of pianists like um, Art Tatum, uh, who right after Nat starts his trio. Art Tatum has a similar trio in the early 1940s. Uh, Look at Oscar Peterson, another great jazz pianist, and look at Ahmad Jamal, who is uh, not only a great jazz pianist, but also was a very important influence on people like Miles Davis and even on hip-hop producers later. Um, All of them kind of 
base their concept of the piano trio, at least in part, on what Nat was doing in the late 30s. Uh, and, and this is kind of an interesting kind of, you know, thread. If you look at Oscar Peterson in particular, right after Nat passed away in 1965, Oscar Peterson recorded a really interesting, uh, unusual album called uh, With Respect to Nat, which came out in 1965. And it's Oscar Peterson playing with a trio that has the same instrumentation as the Nat King Cole trio. Um, and he actually sings on that record and sounds just like Nat. It's actually, it's very uncanny. Mm. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's an amazing recording because it's, it's a very heartfelt tribute. And it also shows you uh, just what an impact Nat made on the, the succeeding generation of piano players. Well, you just told us about a Oscar Peterson album that I, in my own mind, had overlooked. What's your personal favorite Nat King Cole album or cut? Yeah, so my favorite album is called Live at the Circle Room. Uh, it's, it came out in 1999, I think, but it's a, it's a collection of recordings that were made in 1946. And mm -hmm. it's, it's really great. It's, it's Nat live with his trio, the trio I was mentioning. Um, performing at a, at a club called the Circle Room. And it's great because it's it because they're live broadcasts, you know, you have like, there's some crowd noise in the back, you can hear people's glasses uh, kind of clinking together. And you hear people kind of like, you, sometimes you hear some talking in the background, there's like an announcer who comes on and announces Nat periodically. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really great, because it's so different from uh, a lot of the context where you'd hear Nat later, which are these very kind of, um, you know, very uh, uh, sophisticated, kind of elaborate and, and large scale productions where you might have a string orchestra and like a large ensemble behind him. Those are great too, but this is a much more intimate kind of casual version of Nat where you have, number one, there's more of a spotlight on his piano playing, which swings very hard and is really incredible. And then also um, his singing is just really like, like not only the, the sound of his voice, which is of course very smooth and sophisticated, but also just his rhythmic sense is, is amazing. You know, you, you can really hear him interacting with the other members of his trio very clearly because it's such a stripped down format. And, and you get a sense of what he would have sounded like if you heard him in person uh, early in his career. I think that's one of the reasons that he took the drum out of that trio. He knew how to use the piano as a percursive and mm -hmm. a melodic instrument, and he knew how to use his voice as a percussive and melodic instrument. Exactly, exactly. That's one of the things, one of the things about African-American music in particular is that if you are doing it well, every instrument is generating rhythm. You know, every, every instrument is sort of is a drum, you know. That's so the same way as if you're a writer, you're uh -huh. beating the drum too. That's one of the things that Ziggy, it's all the drum. We're inheriting mm -hmm. the drum. I am so thrilled that you bring the drum to the museum, that you have this wonderful rhythm of the embodied experience any visitor comes to space that you've curated, because I've had the opportunity to experience some space you've curated when you were at the National African Museum of African American Music in Nashville. So I am thrilled that you are bringing Black aesthetics from so many perspectives and the whole world a perspective to this museum space. And I know you've got to go because you, you it's very generous. Because how many, when did you arrive at the Smithsonian? 
it's only been a few months. I got there in early November. I got here. So I'm, I'm still kind of learning the ropes, but it's been a few months. And I know that you, so I know you're a very, very busy person. And I am so thrilled that you made time to be with us on the Black Bottom Saints podcast today. And that you even brought a little light on St. Billy Eckstein, as well as Nat King Cole. But I want to ask you with one takeaway question, because I'm speaking to you from Nashville. And you said that beautiful thing about the banjo to begin with. Is it true that you spent COVID teaching yourself to play the banjo? I did. I did. So it, you know, I've been fascinated with the banjo and its history since I was in college and had always wanted to learn some. I mean, I'm, I'm a saxophonist by training, so I've never played a stringed instrument before. Um, and so like all of us, I was inside a lot <laughs> during uh, 2020 and into 2021. And so that I, I ordered a banjo. I got a cheap one and started to teach myself how to play claw hammer style. Uh, and, you know, and, and have, have, and took maybe one or two lessons, but mostly taught myself uh, using YouTube videos and uh, some recordings and, um, you know, have, have advanced to the point now where I can play a few songs and things like that. So it's, it's, yeah, I, for me, I wanted to, I wanted to learn the instrument because I wanted to kind of uh, have a deeper understanding of, uh, you know, of, of Black music history, kind of, you know, the techniques for playing the banjo, especially in claw hammer style, kind of are descended from West African techniques. If you look at Senegalese musicians, uh, uh, some of the same hand motions and, and other techniques are still there and they're playing. So it, it's in, in kind of a, a deeper way, it was also a way to just reconnect with my own kind of heritage as a as a black person, you know, both as someone from North Carolina, where there is a long history of banjo playing, uh, and also, again, as someone of African descent, who, who kind of uh, is somebody who grew up in this culture, and, and always wants to learn more about it. So, yeah. So in close, I'm going to give you one completely surprise question. I know this is so much, but if you, you could change the word next week, but if you chose one right now, if you chose one word for Nat King Cole, that a brilliant piano player, that wonderful singer, this political man, what one word would you close our conversation about Nat King Cole with today? I would have to say sophistication. In, mm. Yeah, in, in, in various aspects. I send up the snaps to that, that sophisticated <laughs> pianist, sophisticated heartthrob, sophisticated everything. And I will remind you, you started off as a sophisticated baby in a stroller through the Louvre, right? So <laughs> I know you appreciate sophistication <laughs> and rooted to blackness in a military family. You started off mm -hmm. Stephen Lewis, curator, sophisticated child, listener, musician. <laughs> Thank you for spending this time with us on the podcast. Gonna let you rush off before I share a cocktail that will be in honor of you and Nat King Cole with my listeners. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. I am so thrilled that we could have Stephen Lewis with us on this episode, because he not only provided new illumination for Nat King Cole, he put Billy Eckstein into the conversation. I'm about to give you 
a recipe for a libation. When you make it, don't just lift it to Nat King Cole. Lift it to Dr. Stephen Lewis. Libation for the feast day of Nat King Cole, Awakening Father. One-third jigger of dry gin, one-third jigger of Italian vermouth, one-third jigger of French vermouth, one slice of orange. Add all ingredients, including slice of orange, to a cocktail shaker. Stir. Strain into a cocktail glass. That is a sophisticated drink. Next episode, we'll be talking about the extraordinary Lynette Dobbins-Taylor. Until then, keep zagging with Ziggy and always remember, joy is radical. I am Alice Randall, and this is the Black Bottom Saints podcast. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNeil. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com. If you go. Go.